top five anything just gives me anxiety, to be very honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm like, <laughs> What's up, listeners? And welcome to this Force 5 mini episode where I'm going to talk about what Jackson Barron and I missed in our Top 5 Hollywood Pictures episode. Then we're going to get to a little bit of what I've been watching, which has been quite a bit. And uh, I'm going to wrap that up with today's featured review just in time for the holidays for The Silent Partner from 1978. So back to last episode when Jackson and I put our heart and soul into Hollywood pictures, we knew that there were going to be some amazing films that we just could not fit on our lists. And of course, the internet was quick to let us know what we missed. Not in the top five. Did they get it right? Excuse my language. Okay. Hell no. <laughs> I can't believe. Who, who made that list? Who made that? That's blasphemous. Don't look at me. That's blasphemous. These are all from Twitter. Uh, G Shepard chimed in and said they had at number one for their Hollywood Pictures list quiz show from 1994. They also had Oliver Stone's Nixon from 1996 at number two. At Raven's Films said, when I think Hollywood Pictures Tombstone is foremost on my mind, I think that's the one I most regret leaving off my list. At I Am Choppa said Arachnophobia. They also had Color of Night on there and honorable mention Blood In, Blood Out. Other titles mentioned by people on Twitter were uh, G.I. Jane, Mr. Holland's Opus from 1995, and Evita from 1996, which I have never seen. So if you like Evita and think I would like it too, let me know. All right, on to what I've been watching. After that episode, I went and I watched Arachnophobia. Now, it was kind of hard. Uh, it was streaming on Tubi, I think, had it, and I tried to watch it on Tubi, and the print was just so dark that it, I found it unwatchable. So I ordered the Blu-ray, finally got that in. Not a great picture on the Blu-ray, and it is bare bones, but I gave it a viewing, and it's a really solid, really Spielberg-feeling film. So everything Jackson Boren said was, was correct. Outside of some clunky dialogue, I thought it was really, really good. There are some awkward moments in the script where he, uh, Jeff Bridges' character, rehashes why he's afraid of spiders to his wife, which in real life, you know, he's been married for a long time and his wife would not need to know that. Yet the next scene, they're at a party with people, a lot of people that they've never met before, and it would have been a perfect time to give that exposition on his fear of spiders. But it didn't, it didn't take away from my enjoyment of the film. I thought that arachnophobia was really, really strong. I also saw Thanksgiving. Uh, this is the new Eli Roth horror movie, the, the slasher movie. I had a great time with Thanksgiving. I'm not normally an Eli Roth fan. I'm not a fan of Hostel. I watched like a little bit of Green Inferno and turned it off just because I wasn't interested in it. I've never been a huge fan of his direction, but the man knows his horror movies. I've seen his, I think it's on AMC, his show, The History of Horror. And he's just this encyclopedia of horror movies. And he brings all those tropes into Thanksgiving, but they're done really, really well. He has these high school archetypes that you've seen a million times before, but they're done in a really fun way. And you will probably be guessing about who the killer is for most of this movie. The killer's name is John Carver. That's not giving anything away. That's like part of New England lore where this is set. And back when I reviewed Sick 
earlier this year, I think that was earlier this year, I said it was one great mask away from being a classic slasher film, and this one really sticks to mask landing. It harkens back to those plastic mask days of the 70s and 80s, really gives you these Halloween 3 vibes. It's just a really fun film. It's got some great gore in it. It's got some surprises for sure. I highly recommend checking this out if you like horror movies. I will put it right up there with Blood Rage in terms of yearly Thanksgiving horror films. I think you could have called this Black Friday. It would have been kind of a companion piece to Black Christmas. I don't know why he went with the title Thanksgiving versus Black Friday. But after you watch it, let me know what you think. I also finished up The Fall of the House of Usher. This is the new Mike Flanagan miniseries that's on Netflix. This time he tackles Edgar Allan Poe. This is almost like an Edgar Allan Poe universe type of miniseries, but really solid. I mean, if you've seen anything that Flanagan's done, he's amazing. He just gets it, especially when it comes to miniseries. He's done amazing things with Stephen King. And the fall of the House of, of Usher is, is really fantastic, so highly recommend that. Also saw Wish. Uh, went to Disneyland. We, we try to go to Disneyland during December because the decorations and stuff are amazing. And uh, it didn't have too much new from last time we went. San Francisco is open. They did a rebrand of the Fisherman's Wharf area inside of California Adventure, and, you know, it looks cool. They rebranded the restaurants and made it look a little different. My kid got pictures with Baymax, which was cool, but we had a down day, so we walked a couple blocks to the theater there in Anaheim, and we watched Wish. And, uh, you know, it's an okay animated movie. My kid walked out liking it. My wife and I were kind of like, eh. It had a real opportunity to do something very meta with the Disney universe, and it almost went there a couple times, and it did go there once, but just a little bit too late. It just doesn't feel like it has the spark, and I could not help but see Jeff Kanata, the, one of the podcasters from the film cast when I was watching this, because the villain looks just like him. I thought the villain was pretty intriguing. He was my favorite part of this movie, but overall, Wish was it's it's not one I'm going to revisit very much. There is one that I watched that I am going to revisit a lot, and that's in theaters right now, Godzilla Minus One. Now, I've never been much of a Godzilla fan. The last one that I saw was 1998's Godzilla with Matthew Broderick and the Puff Daddy theme song. But uh, this one was getting a lot of great word of mouth, so I figured, you know what? Screw it. I'll go check it out. This should be shown in Screenwriting 101. In scene one, it's set up with a flawed character who needs to reckon with his main flaw in the third act of the film. And there are no real surprises, but it's so well done that you don't need surprises. And part of that is because of the humans. In American Godzilla films, it's a lot of waiting out the human stories so that we can see the monsters. But in this one, you're going to be so enamored and so wrapped up with the human element that you'll want to hang out with them more. It's almost like Godzilla is walking in and then interrupting your human story. I could have watched an entire movie with just the boat crew because they're really, really awesome. There's a great family element. And then in the back half of the film, it's just everybody working together. There's no like devious undercover government agent. It's all the humans banding together to try and take out this unstoppable force that is Godzilla. And Godzilla looks awesome. Uh, he's got a really retro feel, but it still feels modern. And when he's in screen, it is like, whoa, you really feel like this thing could cause mass destruction. There's a great like Jaws type of scene. And this was the turning point for me. 
this was the point where I sat on the edge of my seat and, and realized I was watching something special. I often walk out of movies and I sit there and I think, what could I have done better with that? And normally I have a couple of ideas, like this character could have done that, or this screenplay could have gone this way instead. And when I walked out of this, there's not one thing that I would have improved. Godzilla Minus One, straight up awesome. It's in theaters right now. It is subtitled in Japanese. Don't let it scare you. It's just a blast. All right, let's get to today's featured review of the 1978 film, The Silent Partner. The Silent Partner has your number, and now your number is up. The Silent Partner, a film that begins with a crime of sheer genius, builds to a climax of sheer terror. And one night when you come home, you'll find me waiting for you. And that'll be the night you'll wish you'd never been born. Don't miss Elliot Gould, Christopher Plummer, and Susanna York in The Silent Partner, Certificate X. All over London and at the classic Oxford Street, see Mr. Square and the ABC's Fulham Road in Bayswater now. In the 80s and early 90s, Carol Co. Pictures was a name that you recognized if you liked action films. The Rambo flicks, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Cliffhanger, Total Recall, Universal Soldier, those were all Carol Co. productions, but it wasn't always that way. At first, they were a small production studio taking advantage of Canada's new Capital Cost Allowance Incentive Plan, which gave production companies tax inducements to go make commercial films there. The script that they chose to produce was called The Silent Partner, a Curtis Hansen adaptation of the 1969 novel Think of a Number by Danish author Anders Bodelson. Now, this is a really terrific setup. A bank teller named Miles, played by Elliot Gould, doesn't have a whole lot going on for him. He spends his day pining after Julie, the bank's operations manager, who isn't very interested in him, and he spends his night with his fish collection. One day in mid-December, he finds a discarded hold-up note written on a deposit slip with a very distinct handwriting. He later sees the same handwriting on a mall Santa Claus's charity sign and puts it together after the man walks in directly after a mall restaurant owner who is making his daily deposit. The mall Santa is going to rob the bank. Now, instead of informing the authorities or notifying the people at the bank, Miles decides to go into business for himself, pocketing the next day's deposit when he sees the mall Santa coming. So Santa robs the bank and he escapes, but he escapes with a paltry sum. Miles, on the other hand, leaves with the actual deposit. When it's all said and done, he pockets over $48,000 in Canadian money. Adjusted for inflation, you're looking at like uh, close to 150 grand. Now, Santa is gone and the money is safe and sound, but what Miles doesn't realize is that Arthur Reichel, the man dressed as jolly old Saint Nick, is a stone-cold psycho, and it's his goal to get that money back. This is a really excellent suspense thriller that showcases the talent of both Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer, who plays Arthur Reichel. Miles is a man who's so often underestimated that he starts to realize he can use it to his advantage. Yet, when he's not acting completely aloof, he's extremely confident and powerfully smart. Plummer's Reichel, on the other hand, is pure evil, which he shows during spurts of incredible violence, first in a sauna-turned-trick house, and later with the way he uses a fish tank, and bonus points for probably being the first and maybe only villain who sports an anklet. Other members of the cast include Julie, played by Susanna York, the beautiful Celine Lomez, who comes into the film about halfway and lights the sexiest cigarette I have ever seen on film, a very early long-haired performance by John Candy and Gail Doms Bonine as a new employee who wears amazing, seemingly homemade, sexually suggestive t-shirts at work that say things like, bankers do it with interest, and penalty for pulling out early. Daryl Duke directed most of this film outside of an extremely exploitative scene of violence, which he refused to direct and actually walked out. So screenwriter Curtis Hansen completed that sequence. 
This was Duke's second film after his 1973 rip-torn country music cross-country adventure Payday, and I thought he directed it quite well. There are a few standout scenes of suspense, but it was small touches like the use of a shadow to show Reichel waiting outside of Miles' apartment that showed great skill. The screenplay is nice and tight. I haven't read the book, so I don't know how closely the film follows the book. I thought it was great how it managed to subvert expectations in that going in. I thought it would be about Miles being squeezed by Reichel, but instead both men went back and forth like a game of chess, an obvious allegory as one of Miles' hobbies is solving complex chess problems. As for Hanson reluctantly finishing this film and the pickup shots, it worked out pretty well for him. He would later win an Oscar for LA Confidential and was celebrated for other films like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Wonder Boy, an 8 Mile. Now, I had seen this film before, but I hadn't seen it in a very long time and went in basically with a blank slate. And I can confidently recommend this film to anybody looking for a twisty, Hitchcockian Christmas crime picture. The lead performances are awesome, Gould is on fire, and it's really fun to see Christopher Plummer playing such a delicious bad guy. Plus, you get a lot of great backdrops of a late 70s Toronto mall. I swear, seeing stores like the Orange Cup, which is just a mall kiosk made to look like a giant orange, just tickle me. I wasn't the only person to love The Silent Partner. It won six Canadian film awards, including Best Feature Film and Best Director. It also won three different sound categories, including Best Musical Score, which was performed by jazz pianist Oscar Peterson. Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half out of four stars after admitting that he thought it was going to be terrible. Of the film, he said, quote, Along with half a dozen other lonely moviegoers, I was witness to a small miracle. To a thriller that was not only intelligently and well-acted and very scary, but also had the most audaciously clockwork plot I've seen in a very long time. Silent Partner's plot, indeed, has such ironies and reversals and neatly inevitable triple crosses that it's worthy of Hitchcock. End quote. If you're interested in seeing The Silent Partner, Kino Lorber put this out on Blu-ray, and it looks really good, it sounds great. The disc has two extras. First, you get a nice 25-minute interview with Elliot Gould, where he talks about his experience making the film and what his career prospects look like before and after, as well as a commentary by Howard Berger, Steve Mitchell, and Nathaniel Thompson, all film critics. These guys are great. They're on a lot of Kino releases, and with good reason. They just deliver really good commentaries. So yeah, The Silent Partner from 1978, I highly recommend it this holiday season if you want something in the Christmas crime realm. All right, what did you think about the films I talked about today? Have you seen Thanksgiving? Have you seen Godzilla Minus One? Have you seen The Silent Partner? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Hit me up on Twitter at Force5Pod or anywhere else at Force5Podcast. You can also email me at Force5Podcast at gmail.com or find me on the Cinematics Facebook page. Tune in next week as we invite both co-chairs from the Lapsed Fan Podcast. Yes, J.P. Sorrow has been our annual Christmas guest for three years running, but Jack Encarnacio will be on Force 5 for the first time as the two go head-to-head in the Christmas film draft, which promises to be a lot of fun. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and goddammit, go watch Godzilla Minus One. 